Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Now, not to bury him until it was fulfilled. Next morning the prince and the rest of the young knights rode away to the border country to join the English army, and the king, now weak and sick, followed in a horse litter. Bruce, after losing a battle, and undergoing many dangers and much misery, fled to Ireland, where he lay concealed through the winter. That winter Edward passed in hunting down and executing Bruce's relations and adherents, sparing neither youth nor age, and showing no touch of pity or sign of mercy. In the following spring Bruce reappeared and gained some victories. In these frays both sides were grievously cruel. For instance, Bruce's two brothers, being taken captives, desperately wounded, were ordered by the king to instant execution. Bruce's friend, Sir John Douglas, taking his own castle of Douglas out of the hands of an English lord, roasted the dead bodies of the slaughtered garrison in a great fire made of every movable within it, which dreadful cookery his men called the Douglas larder. Bruce, still successful, however, drove the Earl of Pembroke and the Earl of Gloucester into the castle of Ayr, and laid siege to it. The king, who had been laid up all winter, but had directed the army from his sickbed, now advanced to Carlisle, and there, causing the litter in which he had travelled, to be placed in the cathedral as an offering to heaven, mounted his horse once more, and for the last time. He was now sixty-nine years old, and had reigned thirty-five years, he was so ill that in four days he could go no more than six miles. Still, even at that pace, he went on and resolutely kept his face towards the border. At length he lay down at the village of Burrow upon Sands, and there, telling those around him to impress upon the prince that he was to remember his father's vow, and was never to rest until he had thoroughly subdued Scotland, he yielded up his last breath. End of chapter 16. Chapter 17 of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, June 2007. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter 17 England under Edward II. King Edward II, the first Prince of Wales, was twenty three years old when his father died. There was a certain favourite of his, a young man from Gascony, named Piers Gaveston, of whom his father had so much disapproved that he had ordered him out of England, and had made his son swear by the side of his sick-bed never to bring him back. But the prince no sooner found himself king than he broke his oath, as so many other princes and kings did—they were far too ready to take oaths—and sent for his dear friend immediately. Now this same Gaveston was handsome enough, but was a reckless, insolent, audacious fellow. He was detested by the proud English lords, not only because he had such power over the king, and made the court such a dissipated place, but also because he could ride better than they at tournaments, and was used, in his impudence, to cut very bad jokes on them, calling one the old hog, another the stage-player, another the Jew, another the black dog of Ardennes. This was as poor wit as need be, but it made those lords very wroth, and the surly Earl of Warwick, who was the black dog, swore that the time should come when Piers Gaveston should feel the black dog's teeth. 
It was not come yet, however, nor did it seem to be coming. The king made him Earl of Cornwall, and gave him vast riches, and when the king went over to France to marry the French princess Isabella, daughter of Philip le Bel, who was said to be the most beautiful woman in the world, he made Gaveston regent of the kingdom. His splendid marriage ceremony in the church of Our Lady at Bologna, where there were four kings and three queens present, quite a pack of court cards, for I dare say the knaves were not wanting, being over, he seemed to care little or nothing for his beautiful wife, but was wild with impatience to meet Gaveston again. When he landed at home, he paid no attention to anybody else, but ran into the favorite's arms before a great concourse of people, and hugged him and kissed him, and called him his brother. At the coronation which soon followed, Gaveston was the richest and brightest of all the glittering company there, and had the honor of carrying the crown. This made the proud lords fiercer than ever. The people, too, despised the favorite, and would never call him Earl of Cornwall, however much he complained to the king, and asked him to punish them for not doing so, but persisted in styling him Plain Piers Gaveston. The barons were so unceremonious with the king, in giving him to understand that they would not bear this favorite, that the king was obliged to send him out of the country. The favorite himself was made to take an oath, more oaths, that he would never come back, and the barons supposed him to be banished in disgrace, until they heard that he was appointed governor of Ireland. Even this was not enough for the besotted king, who brought him home again in a year's time, and not only disgusted the court and the people by his doting folly, but offended his beautiful wife too, who never liked him afterwards. He had now the old royal want of money, and the barons had the new power of positively refusing to let him raise any. He summoned a parliament at York, the barons refused to make one, while the favorite was near him. He summoned another parliament at Westminster, and sent Gaveston away. Then the barons came, completely armed, and appointed a committee of themselves to correct abuses in the state and in the king's household. He got some money on these conditions, and directly set off with Gaveston to the border country, where they spent it in idling away the time, and feasting, while Bruce made ready to drive the English out of Scotland. For, though the old king had even made this poor, weak son of his swear, as some say, that he would not bury his bones, but would have them boiled clean in a cauldron, and carried before the English army, until Scotland was entirely subdued, the second Edward was so unlike the first, that Bruce gained strength and power every day. The committee of nobles, after some months of deliberation, ordained that the king should henceforth call a parliament together, once every year, and even twice if necessary, instead of summoning it only when he chose. Further, that Gaveston should once more be banished, and this time on pain of death, if he ever came back. The king's tears were of no avail. He was obliged to send his favorite to Flanders. As soon as he had done so, however, he dissolved the parliament, with the low cunning of a mere fool, and set off to the north of England, thinking to get an army about him to oppose the nobles. And once again he brought Gaveston home, and heaped upon him all the riches and titles of which the barons had deprived him. The lords saw now that there was nothing for it but to put the favorite to death. They could have done so legally, according to the terms of his banishment, but they did so, I am sorry to say, in a shabby manner. Led by the Earl of Lancaster, the king's cousin, they first of all attacked the king and Gaveston at Newcastle. They had time to escape by sea, and the mean king, having his precious Gaveston with him, was quite content to leave his lovely wife behind. When they were comparatively safe, they separated. The king went to York to collect a force of soldiers, and the favorite shut himself up, in the meantime, in Scarborough Castle, overlooking the sea. This was what the barons wanted. They knew that the castle could not hold out. They attacked it, and made Gaveston surrender. He delivered himself up to the Earl of Pembroke, that lord whom he had called the Jew, on the earl's pledging his faith and knightly word that no harm should happen to him, and no violence be done him. Now it was agreed with Gaveston that he should be taken to the castle of Wallingford, and there kept in honorable custody. They travelled as far as Deddington, near Banbury, where, in the castle of that place, they stopped for a night to rest. 
Whether the Earl of Pembroke left his prisoner there, knowing what would happen, or really left him thinking no harm, and only going, as he pretended, to visit his wife, the Countess, who was in the neighbourhood, is no great matter now. In any case, he was bound as an honourable gentleman to protect his prisoner, and he did not do it. In the morning, while the favourite was yet in bed, he was required to dress himself and come down into the courtyard. He did so without any mistrust, but started and turned pale when he found it full of strange, armed men. "'I think you know me?' said their leader, also armed from head to foot. "'I am the black dog of Ardennes.' The time was come when Piers Gaveston was to feel the black dog's teeth indeed. They set him on a mule, and carried him, in mock state and with military music, to the black dog's kennel, Warwick Castle, where a hasty council, composed of some great noblemen, considered what should be done with him. Some were for sparing him, but one loud voice, it was the black dog's bark, I dare say, sounded through the castle hall, uttering these words, You have the fox in your power, let him go now, and you must hunt him again. They sentenced him to death. He threw himself at the feet of the Earl of Lancaster, the old hog, but the old hog was as savage as the dog. He was taken out upon the pleasant road, leading from Warwick to Coventry, where the beautiful river Avon, by which, long afterwards, William Shakespeare was born, and now lies buried, sparkled in the bright landscape of the beautiful May day, and there they struck off his wretched head, and stained the dust with his blood. When the king heard of this black deed, in his grief and rage he denounced relentless war against his barons, and both sides were in arms for half a year. But it then became necessary for them to join their forces against Bruce, who had used the time well while they were divided, and had now a great power in Scotland. Intelligence was brought that Bruce was then besieging Stirling Castle, and that the governor had been obliged to pledge himself to surrender it, unless he should be relieved before a certain day. Hereupon the king ordered the nobles and their fighting men to meet him at Berwick, but the nobles cared so little for the king, and so neglected the summons, and lost time, that only on the day before that appointed for the surrender did the king find himself at Stirling, and even then with a smaller force than he had expected. However, he had altogether a hundred thousand men, and Bruce had not more than forty thousand, but Bruce's army was strongly posted in three square columns, on the ground lying between the burn or brook of Bannock, and the walls of Stirling Castle. On the very evening when the king came up, Bruce did a brave act that encouraged his men. He was seen by a certain Henry de Bohun, an English knight, riding about before his army on a little horse, with a light battle-axe in his hand, and a crown of gold on his head. This English knight, who was mounted on a strong war-horse, cased in steel, strongly armed, and able, as he thought, to overthrow Bruce by crushing him with his mere weight, set spurs to his great charger, rode on him, and made a thrust at him with his heavy spear. Bruce parried the thrust, and with one blow of his battle-axe, split his skull. The Scottish men did not forget this, next day when the battle raged. Randolph, Bruce's valiant nephew, rode with the small body of men he commanded, into such a host of the English, all shining in polished armour in the sunlight, that they seemed to be swallowed up and lost, as if they had plunged into the sea. But they fought so well, and did such dreadful execution, that the English staggered. Then came Bruce himself upon them, with all the rest of his army. While they were thus hard-pressed and amazed, there appeared upon the hills what they supposed to be a new Scottish army, but what were really only the camp followers, in number fifteen thousand, whom Bruce had taught to show themselves at that place and time. The Earl of Gloucester, commanding the English horse, made a last rush to change the fortune of the day, but Bruce, like Jack the Giant-Killer in the story, had had pits dug in the ground, and covered over with turfs and stakes. Into these, as they gave way beneath the weight of the horses, riders and horses rolled by hundreds. The English were completely routed, all their treasure, stores, and engines were taken by the Scottish men, so many wagons and other wheeled vehicles were seized that it is related that they would have reached, if they had been drawn out in a line, one hundred and eighty miles. The fortunes of Scotland were, for the time, completely changed. 
and never was a battle won more famous upon Scottish ground than this great battle of Bannockburn. Plague and famine succeeded in England, and still the powerless king and his disdainful lords were always in contention. Some of the turbulent chiefs of Ireland made proposals to Bruce to accept the rule of that country. He sent his brother Edward to them, who was crowned king of Ireland. He afterwards went himself to help his brother in his Irish wars, but his brother was defeated in the end and killed. Robert Bruce, returning to Scotland, still increased his strength there. As the king's ruin had begun in a favourite, so it seemed likely to end in one. He was too poor a creature to rely at all upon himself, and his new favourite was one Hugh the Dispenser, the son of a gentleman of ancient family. Hugh was handsome and brave, but he was the favourite of a weak king, whom no man cared to rush for, and that was a dangerous place to hold. The nobles leagued against him, because the king liked him, and they lay in wait, both for his ruin and his father's. Now the king had married him to the daughter of the late Earl of Gloucester, and had given both him and his father great possessions in Wales. In their endeavours to extend these, they gave violent offence to an angry Welsh gentleman named John de Mowbray, and to divers other angry Welsh gentlemen, who resorted to arms, took their castles, and seized their estates. The Earl of Lancaster had first placed the favourite, who was a poor relation of his own, at court, and he considered his own dignity offended by the preference he received, and the honours he acquired. So he and the barons who were his friends joined the Welshmen, marched on London, and sent a message to the king demanding to have the favourite and his father banished. At first the king unaccountably took it into his head to be spirited, and to send them a bold reply, but when they quartered themselves around Holborn and Clerkenwell, and went down, armed, to the Parliament at Westminster, he gave way, and complied with their demands. His turn of triumph came sooner than he expected. It arose out of an accidental circumstance. The beautiful queen, happening to be travelling, came one night to one of the royal castles, and demanded to be lodged and entertained there until morning. The governor of this castle, who was one of the enraged lords, was away, and in his absence his wife refused admission to the queen. A scuffle took place among the common men on either side, and some of the royal attendants were killed. The people, who cared nothing for the king, were very angry that their beautiful queen should be thus rudely treated in her own dominions, and the king, taking advantage of this feeling, besieged the castle, took it, and then called the two despensers home. Upon this the confederate lords and the Welshmen went over to Bruce. The king encountered them at Boroughbridge, gained the victory, and took a number of distinguished prisoners, among them the Earl of Lancaster, now an old man, upon whose destruction he was resolved. This earl was taken to his own castle of Pontefract, and there tried and found guilty by an unfair court appointed for the purpose. He was not even allowed to speak in his own defence. He was insulted, pelted, mounted on a starved pony without saddle or bridle, carried out, and beheaded. Eight and twenty knights were hanged, drawn, and quartered. When the king had dispatched this bloody work, and had made a fresh and a long truce with Bruce, he took the despensers into greater favour than ever, and made the father Earl of Winchester. One prisoner, and an important one, who was taken at Boroughbridge, made his escape, however, and turned the tide against the king. This was Roger Mortimer, always resolutely opposed to him, who was sentenced to death, and placed for safe custody in the Tower of London. He treated his guards to a quantity of wine into which he had put a sleeping potion, and, when they were insensible, broke out of his dungeon, got into a kitchen, climbed up the chimney, let himself down from the roof of the building with a rope-ladder, passed the sentries, got down to the river, and made away in a boat to where servants and horses were waiting for him. He finally escaped to France, where Charles Le Bel, the brother of the beautiful queen, was king. Charles sought to quarrel with the king of England, on pretense of his not having come to do him homage at his coronation. It was proposed that the beautiful queen should go over to arrange the dispute. She went, and wrote home to the king, that as he was sick and could not come to France himself, perhaps it would be better to send over the young prince, their son, who was only twelve years old, who could do homage to her brother in his stead. 
and in whose company she would immediately return. The king sent him, but both he and the queen remained at the French court, and Roger Mortimer became the queen's lover. When the king wrote, again and again, to the queen to come home, she did not reply that she despised him too much to live with him any more, which was the truth, but said she was afraid of the two despenseurs. In short, her design was to overthrow the favorite's power, and the king's power, such as it was, and invade England. Having obtained a French force of two thousand men, and being joined by all the English exiles then in France, she landed within a year, at Orwell, in Suffolk, where she was immediately joined by the earls of Kent and Norfolk, the king's two brothers, by other powerful noblemen, and lastly, by the first English general, who was dispatched to check her, who went over to her with all his men. The people of London, receiving these tidings, would do nothing for the king, but broke open the tower, let out all his prisoners, and threw up their caps, and hurrahed for the beautiful queen. The king, with his two favorites, fled to Bristol, where he left old Despenser in charge of the town and castle, while he went on with the son to Wales. The Bristol men being opposed to the king, and it being impossible to hold the town with enemies everywhere within the walls, Despenser yielded it up on the third day, and was instantly brought to trial for having traitorously influenced what was called the king's mind, though I doubt if the king ever had any. He was a venerable old man, upwards of ninety years of age, but his age gained no respect or mercy. He was hanged, torn open while he was yet alive, cut up into pieces, and thrown to the dogs. His son was soon taken, tried at Hereford, before the same judge, on a long series of foolish charges, found guilty, and hanged upon a gallows fifty feet high, with a chaplet of nettles round his head. His poor old father and he were innocent enough of any worse crimes than the crime of having been friends of a king, on whom, as a mere man, they would never have deigned to cast a favorable look. It is a bad crime, I know, and leads to worse, but many lords and gentlemen, I even think some ladies too, if I recollect right, have committed it in England, who have neither been given to the dogs, nor hanged up fifty feet high. The wretched king was running here and there all this time, and never getting anywhere in particular, until he gave himself up, and was taken off to Kenilworth Castle. When he was safely lodged there, the queen went to London and met the Parliament, and the Bishop of Hereford, who was the most skilful of her friends, said, What was to be done now? Here was an imbecile, indolent, miserable king upon the throne. Wouldn't it be better to take him off, and put his son there instead? I don't know whether the queen really pitied him at this pass, but she began to cry. So the bishop said, Well, my lords and gentlemen, what do you think upon the whole of sending down to Kenilworth, and seeing if his majesty, God bless him, and forbid we should depose him, won't resign? My lords and gentlemen thought it a good notion, so a deputation of them went down to Kenilworth, and there the king came into the great hall of the castle, commonly dressed in a poor black gown and when he saw a certain bishop among them, fell down, poor feeble-headed man, and made a wretched spectacle of himself. Somebody lifted him up, and then Sir William Trussell, the Speaker of the House of Commons, almost frightened him to death, by making him a tremendous speech to the effect that he was no longer a king, and that everybody renounced allegiance to him. After which Sir Thomas Blount, the steward of the household, nearly finished him, by coming forward and breaking his white wand, which was a ceremony only performed at a king's death. Being asked in this pressing manner what he thought of resigning, the king said he thought it was the best thing he could do. So he did it, and they proclaimed his son next day. I wish I could close this history by saying that he lived a harmless life in the castle, and the castle gardens at Kenilworth many years, that he had a favorite and plenty to eat and drink, and having that wanted nothing, but he was shamefully humiliated. He was outraged and slighted, and had dirty water from ditches given him to shave with, and wept, and said he would have clean, warm water, and was altogether very miserable. He was moved from this castle to that castle, and from that castle to the other castle, because this lord or that lord or the other lord was too kind to him, until at last he came to Berkeley Castle, near the River Severn, 
where, the Lord Berkeley being then ill and absent, he fell into the hands of two black ruffians, called Thomas Gournay and William Ogle. One night, it was the night of September the 21st, 1,327, dreadful screams were heard by the startled people in the neighboring town, ringing through the thick walls of the castle and the dark, deep night, and they said, as they were thus horribly awakened from their sleep, May heaven be merciful to the king, for those cries forebode that no good is being done to him in this dismal prison. Next morning he was dead, not bruised or stabbed or marked upon the body, but much distorted in the face, and it was whispered afterwards that those two villains, Gournay and Ogle, had burnt up his inside with a red-hot iron. If you ever come near Gloucester and see the center tower of its beautiful cathedral, with its four rich pinnacles, rising lightly in the air, you may remember that the wretched Edward the Second was buried in the old abbey of that ancient city, at forty-three years old, after being for nineteen years and a half a perfectly incapable king. End of chapter 17「Chapter 18 England under Edward the Third. Roger Mortimer, the Queen's lover, who escaped to France in the last chapter, was far from profiting by the examples he had had of the fate of favourites. Having, through the Queen's influence, come into possession of the estates of the two Despenseurs, he became extremely proud and ambitious, and sought to be the real ruler of England. The young king, who was crowned at fourteen years of age, with all the usual solemnities, resolved not to bear this, and soon pursued Mortimer to his ruin. The people themselves were not fond of Mortimer, first because he was a royal favourite, secondly because he was supposed to have helped to make a peace with Scotland which now took place, and in virtue of which the young king's sister Joan, only seven years old, was promised in marriage to David the son and heir of Robert Bruce, who was only five years old. The nobles hated Mortimer because of his pride, riches, and power. They went so far as to take up arms against him, but were obliged to submit. The Earl of Kent, one of those who did so, but who afterwards went over to Mortimer and the Queen, was made an example of in the following cruel manner. He seems to have been anything but a wise old earl, and he was persuaded by the agents of the favourite and the queen, that poor King Edward the Second was not really dead, and thus was betrayed into writing letters favouring his rightful claim to the throne. This was made out to be high treason, and he was tried, found guilty, and sentenced to be executed. They took the poor old lord outside the town of Winchester, and there kept him waiting some three or four hours until they could find somebody to cut off his head. At last a convict said he would do it, if the government would pardon him in return, and they gave him the pardon, and at one blow he put the Earl of Kent out of his last suspense. While the Queen was in France she had found a lovely and good young lady named Philippa, who she thought would make an excellent wife for her son. The young king married this lady soon after he came to the throne, and her first child, Edward, Prince of Wales, afterwards became celebrated, as we shall presently see, under the famous title of Edward the Black Prince. The young king, thinking the time ripe for the downfall of Mortimer, took counsel with the Lord Montacute how he should proceed. A Parliament was going to be held at Nottingham, and that Lord recommended that the favourite should be seized by night in Nottingham Castle, where he was sure to be. Now this, like many other things, was more easily said than done, because, to guard against treachery, 
the great gates of the castle were locked every night, and the great keys were carried upstairs to the queen, who laid them under her own pillow. But the castle had a governor, and the governor, being Lord Montacute's friend, confided to him how he knew of a secret passage underground, hidden from observation by the weeds and brambles with which it was overgrown, and how, through that passage, the conspirators might enter in the dead of the night, and go straight to Mortimer's room. Accordingly, upon a certain dark night, at midnight, they made their way through this dismal place, startling the rats and frightening the owls and bats, and came safely to the bottom of the main tower of the castle, where the king met them, and took them up a profoundly dark staircase in a deep silence. They soon heard the voice of Mortimer in council with some friends, and bursting into the room with a sudden noise, took him prisoner. The queen cried out from her bedchamber, "'Oh, my sweet son, my dear son, spare my gentle Mortimer!' They carried him off, however, and before the next Parliament, accused him of having made differences between the young king and his mother, and of having brought about the death of the Earl of Kent, and even of the late king, for, as you know by this time, when they wanted to get rid of a man in those old days, they were not very particular of what they accused him. Mortimer was found guilty of all this, and was sentenced to be hanged at Tyburn. The king shut his mother up in genteel confinement, where she passed the rest of her life and now he became king in earnest. The first effort he made was to conquer Scotland. The English lords who had lands in Scotland, finding that their rights were not respected under the late peace, made war on their own account, choosing for their general Edward, the son of John Balliol, who made such a vigorous fight that in less than two months he won the whole Scottish kingdom. He was joined, when thus triumphant, by the king and parliament, and he and the king in person besieged the Scottish forces in Berwick. The whole Scottish army, coming to the assistance of their countrymen, such a furious battle ensued that thirty thousand men are said to have been killed in it. Balliol was then crowned King of Scotland, doing homage to the King of England. But little came of his successes after all, for the Scottish men rose against him within no very long time, and David Bruce came back within ten years, and took his kingdom. France was a far richer country than Scotland, and the king had a much greater mind to conquer it. So he let Scotland alone, and pretended that he had a claim to the French throne in right of his mother. He had, in reality, no claim at all, but that mattered little in those times. He brought over to his cause many little princes and sovereigns, and even courted the alliance of the people of Flanders, a busy working community, who had very small respect for kings, and whose head man was a brewer. With such forces as he raised by these means, Edward invaded France, but he did little by that, except run into debt in carrying on the war to the extent of three hundred thousand pounds. The next year he did better, gaining a great sea-fight in the harbour of Sluys. This success, however, was very short-lived, for the Flemings took fright at the siege of St. Omer, and ran away, leaving their weapons and baggage behind them. Philip, the French king, coming up with his army, and Edward being very anxious to decide the war, proposed to settle the difference by single combat with him, or by a fight of one hundred knights on each side. The French king said he thanked him, but being very well as he was, he would rather not. So, after some skirmishing and talking, a short peace was made. It was soon broken by King Edward's favouring the cause of John, Earl of Montford, a French nobleman, who asserted a claim of his own against the French king, and offered to do homage to England for the crown of France, if he could obtain it through England's help. This French lord himself was soon defeated by the French king's son, and shut up in a tower in Paris. But his wife, a courageous and beautiful woman, who is said to have had the courage of a man, and the heart of a lion, assembled the people of Brittany, where she then was, and, showing them her infant son, made many pathetic entreaties to them not to desert her and their young lord. They took fire at this appeal, and rallied round her in the strong castle of Hennebon. 
Here she was not only besieged without by the French under Charles de Blois, but was endangered within by a dreary old bishop who was always representing to the people what horrors they must undergo if they were faithful, first from famine, and afterwards from fire and sword. But this noble lady, whose heart never failed her, encouraged her soldiers by her own example, went from post to post like a great general. Even mounted on horseback fully armed, and issuing from the castle by a by-path, fell upon the French camp, set fire to the tents, and threw the whole force into disorder. This done, she got safely back to Hennebon again, and was received with loud shouts of joy by the defenders of the castle, who had given her up for lost. As they were now very short of provisions, however, and as they could not dine off enthusiasm, and as the old bishop was always saying, I told you what it would come to, they began to lose heart, and to talk of yielding the castle up. The brave countess, retiring to an upper room, and looking with great grief out to sea, where she expected relief from England, saw at this very time the English ships in the distance, and was relieved and rescued. Sir Walter Manning, the English commander, so admired her courage, that, being come into the castle with the English knights, and having made a feast there, he assaulted the French by way of dessert, and beat them off triumphantly. Then he and the knights came back to the castle with great joy, and the countess, who had watched them from a high tower, thanked them with all her heart, and kissed them every one. This noble lady distinguished herself afterwards in a sea-fight with the French off Guernsey, when she was on her way to England to ask for more troops. Her great spirit roused another lady, the wife of another French lord, whom the French king very barbarously murdered, to distinguish herself scarcely less. The time was fast coming, however, when Edward, Prince of Wales, was to be the great star of this French and English war. It was in the month of July, in the year 1346, when the king embarked at Southampton for France, with an army of about thirty thousand men in all, attended by the Prince of Wales and by several of the chief nobles. He landed at La Hogue in Normandy, and, burning and destroying as he went, according to custom, advanced up the left bank of the river Seine, and fired the small towns even close to Paris, but being watched from the right bank of the river by the French king and all his army, it came to this at last, that Edward found himself, on Saturday, the 26th of August, 1346, on a rising ground behind the little French village of Crecy, face to face with the French king's force, and although the French king had an enormous army, in number more than eight times his, he there resolved to beat him, or be beaten. The young prince, assisted by the Earl of Oxford and the Earl of Warwick, led the first division of the English army. Two other great earls led the second, and the king the third. When the morning dawned, the king received the sacrament, and heard prayers, and then, mounted on horseback, with a white wand in his hand, rode from company to company, and rank to rank, cheering and encouraging both officers and men. Then the whole army breakfasted, each man sitting on the ground where he had stood, and then they remained quietly on the ground, with their weapons ready. Up came the French king with all his great force. It was dark and angry weather, there was an eclipse of the sun, there was a thunderstorm, accompanied with tremendous rain, the frightened birds flew screaming above the soldiers' heads, a certain captain in the French army advised the French king, who was by no means cheerful, not to begin the battle until the morrow. The king, taking this advice, gave the word to halt. But those behind, not understanding it, or desiring to be foremost with the rest, came pressing on. The roads for a great distance were covered with this immense army, and with the common people from the villages, who were flourishing their rude weapons, and making a great noise. Owing to these circumstances, the French army advanced in the greatest confusion, every French lord doing what he liked with his own men, and putting out the men of every other French lord. Now their king relied strongly upon a great body of crossbowmen from Genoa, and these he ordered to the front to begin the battle. 
on finding that he could not stop it. They shouted once, they shouted twice, they shouted three times to alarm the English archers, but the English would have heard them shout three thousand times, and would have never moved. At last the crossbowmen went forward a little, and began to discharge their bolts, upon which the English let fly such a hail of arrows that the Genoese speedily made off, for their crossbows, besides being heavy to carry, required to be wound up with a handle, and consequently took time to reload. The English, on the other hand, could discharge their arrows almost as fast as the arrows could fly. When the French king saw the Genoese turning, he cried out to his men to kill those scoundrels who were doing harm instead of service. This increased the confusion. Meanwhile the English archers, continuing to shoot as fast as ever, shot down great numbers of the French soldiers and knights, whom certain sly Cornishmen and Welshmen from the English army, creeping along the ground, dispatched with great knives. The prince and his division were at this time so hard-pressed that the Earl of Warwick sent a message to the king, who was overlooking the battle from a windmill, beseeching him to send more aid. "'Is my son killed?' said the king. "'No, sire, please God,' returned the messenger. "'Is he wounded?' said the king. "'No, sire.' "'Is he thrown to the ground?' said the king. "'No, sire, not so, but he is very hard-pressed.' "'Then,' said the king, "'go back to those who sent you, and tell them I shall send no aid, because I set my heart upon my son, proving himself this day a brave knight, and because I am resolved, please God, that the honour of a great victory shall be his.' These bold words, being reported to the prince and his division, so raised their spirits that they fought better than ever. The king of France charged gallantly with his men many times, but it was of no use. Night closing in, his horse was killed under him by an English arrow, and the knights and nobles, who had clustered thick about him early in the day, were now completely scattered. At last some of his few remaining followers led him off the field by force, since he would not retire of himself, and they journeyed away to Amiens. The victorious English, lighting their watch-fires, made merry on the field, and the king, riding to meet his gallant son, took him in his arms, kissed him, and told him that he had acted nobly, and proved himself worthy of the day and of the crown. While it was yet night, King Edward was hardly aware of the great victory he had gained, but, next day, it was discovered that eleven princes, twelve hundred knights, and thirty thousand common men lay dead upon the French side. Among these was the king of Bohemia, an old blind man, who, having been told that his son was wounded in the battle, and that no force could stand against the black prince, called to him two knights, put himself on horseback between them, fastened the three bridles together, and dashed in among the English, where he was presently slain. He bore as his crest three white ostrich feathers, with the motto, Ik Dien, signifying in English, I serve. This crest and motto were taken by the Prince of Wales in remembrance of that famous day, and have been borne by the Prince of Wales ever since. Five days after this great battle, the king laid siege to Calais, this siege, ever afterwards memorable, lasted nearly a year. In order to starve the inhabitants out, King Edward built so many wooden houses for the lodgings of his troops, that it is said their quarters looked like a second Calais, suddenly sprung around the first. Early in the siege the governor of the town drove out what he called the useless mouths, to the number of seventeen hundred persons, men and women, young and old. King Edward allowed them to pass through his lines, and even fed them, and dismissed them with money. But later in the siege he was not so merciful, five hundred more who were afterwards driven out, dying of starvation and misery. The garrison were so hard-pressed at last that they sent a letter to King Philip, telling him that they had eaten all the horses, all the dogs, and all the rats and mice that could be found in the place, and that, if he did not relieve them, they must either surrender to the English, or eat one another. Philip made one effort to give them relief, but they were so hemmed in by the English power that he could not succeed, and was fain to leave the place. 
Upon this they hoisted the English flag, and surrendered to King Edward. "'Tell your general,' said he to the humble messengers who came out of the town, "'that I require to have sent here six of the most distinguished citizens, bare-legged and in their shirts, with ropes about their necks, and let those six men bring with them the keys of the castle and the town.' When the governor of Calais related this to the people in the market-place, there was great weeping and distress, in the midst of which one worthy citizen, named Eustache de Saint-Pierre, rose up and said that if the six men required were not sacrificed, the whole population would be. Therefore he offered himself as the first. Encouraged by this bright example, five other worthy citizens rose up, one after another, and offered themselves to save the rest. The governor, who was too badly wounded to be able to walk, mounted a poor old horse that had not been eaten, and conducted these good men to the gate, while all the people cried and mourned. Edward received them wrathfully, and ordered the heads of the whole six to be struck off. However, the good queen fell upon her knees, and besought the king to give them up to her. The king replied, I wish you had been somewhere else, but I cannot refuse you. So she had them properly dressed, made a feast for them, and sent them back with a handsome present, to the great rejoicing of the whole camp. I hope the people of Calais loved the daughter to whom she gave birth soon afterwards, for her gentle mother's sake. Now came that terrible disease, the plague, into Europe, hurrying from the heart of China, and killed the wretched people, especially the poor in such enormous numbers that one half of the inhabitants of England are related to have died of it. It killed the cattle in great numbers, too, and so few working men remained alive that there were not enough left to till the ground. After eight years of differing and quarrelling, the Prince of Wales again invaded France with an army of sixty thousand men. He went through the south of the country, burning and plundering wheresoever he went, while his father, who had still the Scottish war upon his hands, did the like in Scotland, but was harassed and worried in his retreat from that country by the Scottish men, who repaid his cruelties with interest. The French King Philip was now dead, and was succeeded by his son John. The black prince, called by that name from the colour of the armour he wore, to set off his fair complexion, continuing to burn and destroy in France, roused John into determined opposition, and so cruel had the black prince been in his campaign, and so severely had the French peasants suffered, that he could not find one who, for love or money, or the fear of death, would tell him what the French king was doing, or where he was. Thus it happened that he came upon the French king's forces, all of a sudden, near the town of Poitiers, and found that the whole neighbouring country was occupied by a vast French army. "'God help us,' said the Black Prince. "'We must make the best of it.' So on a Sunday morning, the 18th of September, the Prince, whose army was now reduced to ten thousand men in all, prepared to give battle to the French King, who had sixty thousand horse alone. While he was so engaged, there came riding from the French camp a cardinal, who had persuaded John to let him offer terms, and try to save the shedding of Christian blood. "'Save my honour,' said the prince to this good priest, "'and save the honour of my army, and I will make any reasonable terms.' He offered to give up all the towns, castles, and prisoners he had taken, and to swear to make no war in France for seven years. But as John would hear of nothing but his surrender, with a hundred of his chief knights, the treaty was broken off, and the prince said quietly, "'God defend the right. We shall fight to-morrow.' Therefore on the Monday morning, at a break of day, the two armies prepared for battle. The English were posted in a strong place, which could only be approached by one narrow lane, skirted by hedges on both sides. The French attacked them by this lane, but were so galled and slain by English arrows from behind the hedges that they were forced to retreat. Then went six hundred English bowmen round about, and, coming upon the rear of the French army, rained arrows on them thick and fast. The French knights, thrown into confusion, 
quitted their banners and dispersed in all directions. Said Sir John Chandos to the prince, Ride forward, noble prince, and the day is yours. The king of France is so valiant a gentleman that I know he will never fly, and may be taken prisoner. Said the prince to this, Advance, English banners, in the name of God and St. George. And on they pressed until they came up with the French king, fighting fiercely with his battle-axe, and, when all his nobles had forsaken him, attended faithfully to the last by his youngest son Philip, only sixteen years of age. Father and son fought well, and the king had already two wounds in his face, and had been beaten down, when he at last delivered himself to a banished French knight, and gave him his right-hand glove, in token that he had done so. The black prince was generous as well as brave, and he invited the royal prisoner to supper in his tent, and waited upon him at table, and, when they afterwards rode into London in a gorgeous procession, mounted the French king on a fine cream-coloured horse, and rode at his side on a little pony. This was all very kind, but I think it was, perhaps, a little theatrical, too, and has been made more meritorious than it deserved to be, especially as I am inclined to think that the greatest kindness to the King of France would have been not to have shown him to the people at all. However, it must be said, for these acts of politeness, that in course of time they did much to soften the horrors of war and the passions of conquerors. It was a long, long time before the common soldiers began to have the benefit of such courtly deeds. But they did at last, and thus it is possible that a poor soldier, who asked for quarter at the Battle of Waterloo, or any other such great fight, may have owed his life indirectly to Edward the Black Prince. At this time there stood in the Strand in London a palace called the Savoy, which was given up to the captive King of France and his son for their residence. As the King of Scotland had now been King Edward's captive for eleven years too, his success was, at this time, tolerably complete. The Scottish business was settled by the prisoner being released under the title of Sir David, King of Scotland, and by his engaging to pay a large ransom. The state of France encouraged England to propose harder terms to that country, where the people rose against the unspeakable cruelty and barbarity of its nobles, where the nobles rose in turn against the people, where the most frightful outrages were committed on all sides, and where the insurrection of the peasants, called the insurrection of the Jacquerie, from Jacques, a common Christian name among the country people of France, awakened terrors and hatreds that have scarcely yet passed away. A treaty called the Great Peace was at last signed, under which King Edward agreed to give up the greater part of his conquests, and King John to pay, within six years, a ransom of three million crowns of gold. He was so beset by his own nobles and courtiers for having yielded to these conditions, though they could help him to know better, that he came back of his own will to his old palace prison of the Savoy, and there died. There was a sovereign of Castile at that time, called Pedro the Cruel, who deserved the name remarkably well, having committed, among other cruelties, a variety of murders. This amiable monarch, being driven from his throne for his crimes, went to the province of Bordeaux, where the black prince, now married to his cousin Joan, a pretty widow, was residing, and besought his help. The prince, who took to him much more kindly than a prince of such fame ought to have taken to such a ruffian, readily listened to his fair promises, and, agreeing to help him, sent secret orders to some troublesome disbanded soldiers of his and his father's who called themselves the Free Companions, and who had been a pest to the French people, for some time to aid this Pedro. The prince himself, going into Spain to head the army of relief, soon set Pedro on his throne again, where he no sooner found himself than, of course, he behaved like the villain he was, broke his word without the least shame, and abandoned all the promises he had made to the black prince. Now it had cost the prince a good deal of money to pay soldiers to support this murderous king, and finding himself, when he came back, disgusted to Bordeaux, not only in bad health, but deeply in debt, he began to tax his French subjects to pay his creditors. They appealed to the French king Charles. 
war broke out again, and the French town of Limoges, which the prince had greatly benefited, went over to the French king. Upon this he ravaged the province of which it was the capital, burnt and plundered, and killed in the old sickening way, and refused mercy to the prisoners, men, women, and children, taken in the offending town, though he was so ill and so much in need of pity himself from heaven that he was carried in a litter. He lived to come home and make himself popular with the people and Parliament, and he died on Trinity Sunday, the 8th of June, 1376, at forty-six years old. The whole nation mourned for him as one of the most renowned and beloved princes it had ever had, and he was buried with great lamentations in Canterbury Cathedral. Near to the tomb of Edward the Confessor, his monument, with his figure carved in stone, and represented in the old black armour, laying on its back, may be seen at this day, with an ancient coat of mail, a helmet, and a pair of gauntlets hanging from a beam above it, which most people like to believe were once worn by the Black Prince. King Edward did not outlive his renowned son long. He was old, and one Alice Perrer, a beautiful lady, had contrived to make him so fond of her in his old age, that he could refuse her nothing, and made himself ridiculous. She little deserved his love, or, what I dare say she valued a great deal more, the jewels of the late queen, which he gave her among other rich presents. She took the very ring from his finger on the morning of the day when he died, and left him to be pillaged by his faithless servants. Only one good priest was true to him, and attended him to the last. Besides being famous for the great victories I have related, the reign of King Edward III was rendered memorable in better ways, by the growth of architecture and the erection of Windsor Castle, in better ways still, by the rising up of Wycliffe, originally a poor parish priest, who devoted himself to exposing, with wonderful power and success, the ambition and corruption of the Pope, and of the whole church of which he was the head. Some of those Flemings were induced to come to England in this reign, too, and to settle in Norfolk, where they made better woolen cloths than the English had ever had before. The Order of the Garter, a very fine thing in its way, but hardly so important as a good clothes for the nation, also dates from this period. The king is said to have picked up a lady's garter at a ball, and to have said, Honi sot qui mali pence, in English, evil be to him who evil thinks of it. The courtiers were usually glad to imitate what the king said or did, and hence, from a slight incident, the order of the garter was instituted, and became a great dignity. So the story goes. End of chapter 18 Chapter 19 of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter 19 England under Richard II. Richard, son of the Black Prince, a boy eleven years of age, succeeded to the throne under the title of King Richard II. The whole English nation were ready to admire him for the sake of his brave father. As to the lords and ladies about the court, they declared him to be the most beautiful, the wisest, and the best, even of princes, whom the lords and ladies about the court generally declare to be the most beautiful, the wisest, and the best of mankind. To flatter a poor boy in this base manner was not a very likely way to develop whatever was good in him, and it brought him to anything but a good or happy end. The Duke of Lancaster, the young king's uncle, commonly called John of Gaunt, from having been born at Ghent, which the common people so pronounced, was supposed to have some thoughts of the throne himself, but as he was not popular, and the memory of the Black Prince was, he submitted to his nephew. The war with France being still unsettled, 
the government of England wanted money to provide for the expenses that might arise out of it. Accordingly, a certain tax, called the poll tax, which had originated in the last reign, was ordered to be levied on the people. This was a tax on every person in the kingdom, male and female, above the age of fourteen, of three groats, or three fourpenny pieces, a year. Clergymen were charged more, and only beggars were exempt. I have no need to repeat that the common people of England had long been suffering under great oppression. They were still the mere slaves of the lords of the land on which they lived, and were on most occasions harshly and unjustly treated. But they had begun by this time to think very seriously of not bearing quite so much, and probably were emboldened by that French insurrection I mentioned in the last chapter. The people of Essex rose against the poll tax. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.